Let us pray. Gracious Father, we pray that you would pour your light upon us now, that you would enlighten our hearts and minds to receive from your word, that you would open our hearts to the gospel of Jesus, and we would know your love this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. At the very heart of Christianity is love. When Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he answers that it is to love our God and love our neighbors as ourselves. We've heard this teaching reiterated in 1 John, and today John returns to a theme that we touched on two weeks ago, that the life of the Christian is about following Jesus in a life of love. Now, on the surface, that sounds wonderful. People love love. We love talking about it. We love thinking about it. We love stories about it and songs about it. We just love it. We don't tend to spend much time asking why. Why do people love love? And More importantly, why are Christians called to live a life of love, loving Christ and faithfully following him in loving others? It's the why question that John answers for us today, and he does it by showing that Christians are to love because of where love comes from, how we have been loved, and the impact that that love has. Once again, you can open your study books if you have them, or take a look at the insert. You can follow along in our readings there. John shows us where love comes from by saying something beautiful. In both verse 8 and 16, John tells us that God is love. What a beautiful statement. God is love. The great Anglican theologian J.I. Packer called this one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible. William Law called it the summit of all revelation. God is love. Such a simple and yet profound statement tells us that God is in himself love. It's one of the ways that we can describe who he is. Love is his very nature. Good question to have in mind then as we continue our time together. Is that how you view God? When you think of God, do you see God as love? Hold that question in your mind as we walk through this passage. Before we go too far, we do want to spend a minute talking about love in general. We've said before That love is something that we often struggle to articulate, that it can be something almost intangible, like a force of nature, like gravity or something. J.C. Ryle helpfully points out to us that the absence of accurate definitions is the very life of religious controversy. And so to avoid controversy today, let's remember the definition that we've used in the past. Love is a manner of life that is self-giving rather than self-serving. It is a posture of self-sacrifice for the betterment of others and for the glory of God. 
It's another thing we want to hold in our minds as we talk today. Because the truth is, while we love this statement that God is love, it is also one of the most misunderstood statements in all of Scripture. And it is so misunderstood because of how we often read verse 7. In verse 7, we hear that anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now that could be taken to mean that since God is the source of love, which is true, that any act of love I commit must come from God. It must be something that honors him. Since I am acting in love, God will be pleased with it since, after all, he is love. That being the case, it would be impossible to do something sinful or wrong so long as I am acting in love. It would mean that all loves are an ultimate good and could never lead us astray. I understand why we would want to believe that, but it is a tragic misunderstanding of the truth that God is love. I gave an example previously in our series of a love that was both inappropriate and damaging. I spoke about my love for cigarettes when I was a smoker. I don't think there's anyone out there, maybe even those in the tobacco industry, who would say that that was a good love. It was a love that fueled idolatry and is in a clear example that not all loves are created equal. Not all loves are healthy and not all loves are of God. To believe that all loves are of God happens because we lose the definition of love that scripture gives us. Rather than being self-sacrificing, this approach to love makes it entirely self-serving making our desires and wants the defining factor of what love is. Our definition of love then becomes more important than the truth that God is love. And so we, and we so twist the truth that God is love that it becomes to mean God loves whatever I do. And it, because of that, it becomes that because as much as we love this scripture, we flip it around. We treat God is love as if it says, love is God. And that is a soul-crushing mistake. It makes love our highest good. It makes our idea of love an idol. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, wrote, Love begins to be a demon the moment he begins to be a god. Making love our God will drive us further and further away from the God who is love. Because we'll cease to worship him. We'll worship our concept of love. We do that because we've forgotten something absolutely crucial. We forget that God is love is not the only God is statement in scripture. Earlier in 1 John, we read that God is light. In the book of Hebrews, we read that God is a consuming fire. These mean that God is holy and just. God is love. God is holy and God is just. 
When we emphasize only one aspect of God's character, we lose the overall picture of who God is. It's picking and choosing, constructing the image of God that we prefer instead of the image that God has revealed of himself. And so we idolize our preferred image, loving and worshiping love rather than the source of love. And, and to be clear, we can do it with the other ones as well. We can overemphasize justice and begin to love justice more than we love God. Over time, we begin to love our sin, and we use the word love to justify our sin. And of course, since God is love, and not those other things that I don't really like so much, then God will let me live how I want. It would be unloving for him to reveal or condemn my sin. God would never judge me if he's loving. Do you see the cascading effect that this has? Do you see where we end up? How worshiping love actually drives us further from the source of love? But when we hold all of these God is images together, we see God revealing our sin and idolatry to us is the most loving thing he can do. John Stott reminds us, he who is love is light and fire as well. Far from condoning sin, his love has found a way to expose it because he is light and to consume it because he is fire without destroying the sinner, but rather saving him. That is what it means that God is love. He exposes and consumes sin without destroying the sinner, but rather saving him. And that is exactly how God has loved us. He did not destroy the sinner, but saved him, and he did it in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 reads, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus' coming to us is the revelation of God's love for us. But it's not just his coming in general. John gets more specific. Verse 10. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is in the crucifixion that God's love was put on display for the whole world to see. Jesus showed the love that God has for us by bearing the punishment for our sins, by taking the wrath of God, which we deserved, upon himself. That is what propitiation is all about. In this act, Jesus shows us the ultimate expression of love, that it is self-giving and self-sacrificing. That is what it means to truly love. And that, of course, is life altering truth. If you're paying attention, though, you may have noticed that I skipped a part of verse 10. When I do that, you should pay attention to it. Chances are we're going to come back to it. Here it is. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God is love, and the way in which he has loved us is in the giving of his son as the perfect offering for the sins of the world. And he did it because he loves us, not because we love him. The love of God is freely given and comes 
from him. It's as Paul says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is primary, not ours. God loved us even when we didn't love him. The love of our Father is gracious. It is freely given, unprompted by anything we did and undeserved by those who have received it, and it is completely self-giving. It is the type of love that should bring us to worship, the type of love that should send us to our knees in thanksgiving, and it is great news for us. God's gracious bestowal of love means that we don't need to earn our standing with him. We don't have to go through the motions hoping to do enough or check enough religious boxes that God will then love me. He doesn't love us because we've given the right amount or even that we've loved the right amount. He loves us because he is love. And it is his love that compels us. If this is the love that God has for us, it is that love that is meant to define how the Christian lives in the world. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, the rubber met the road a little bit there, didn't it? If God loved us, so we also ought to love. Why is that the case? Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John is teaching us that the church is meant to love as God has loved them. And that way we reflect the love of God to each other and make him known to one another. Once again, the words of John Stott, God who is love still loves, and today his love is seen in our love. Over the years, there have been many reasons given as to why the church grew as it did. How is it possible that a small group of people in the middle of nowhere in the Roman Empire grew to become the single largest religion in the world. How is that possible? Well, to be clear, it was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Let's not make that mistake. But it is in large part the story of how the Holy Spirit compelled the followers of Christ to love one another and other people in such a way that people took notice and God received the glory. We have the report of an early church father named Tertullian. He told us that the pagans of North Africa would look at how Christians treated each other and say, look at how they love one another. Look at how they are willing to die for one another. The calling card of the Christian was self-sacrificing love. Love that was molded and modeled by the love that Jesus showed us himself. 
And it was this love that had non-believers asking what could possibly cause anyone to love like these people do. Jesus was revealed to the world through the love of the church, the love that he showed us. He became known through self-sacrificing, gracious, freely given love, a love that was only born of a relationship with God who is love and sent his son to die for us when we were dead in our sin. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If we know that is true of us, that we, without the atoning work of Jesus, are dead in our trespasses and sins, but in the gracious love of God, he sent his son to die for us. If we know and believe that to be true, then such a love should drive us to love one another and other people in the same way. That is what verses 11 and 12 are all about. And as we love like Jesus, people get pointed to Jesus. We get to tell them about the confession of verses 14 and 15, that we know the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And if we confess Jesus as the Son of God, then God the Father has come to live and dwell with us. And so we know the love that he has for us and the command he has given us to love others. The witness of the early church was a group of people willing to risk their lives for other people, and not just the people in the church. We have countless reports of Christians taking in those who were suffering from the plague, whether they were Christian or not, into their homes so that they would not die on the streets, risking that they would catch that disease themselves. Because it was more important to them to love that person. That person was worth more than their comfort. Is that the calling card of Christians today? If we were to take a walk around the neighborhood, ask non-believers what they think of Christians, you think they would say, look at how they love one another. Most churches would say they're loving, and many are. But it's a question that we need to ask. Every Christian, every church, are we compelled by the love that Jesus has shown us? Do we love with the love he has freely gave us? It's been a convicting question for me to sit with this week. Reality is, a lot of the time, we only want to love others when it's easy or convenient. Our love is often cold, self-serving rather than self-giving. We're willing to extend love to one another and to those outside the church only when it means things go as we want them to. Or we'll welcome people into the church. Sure, anytime we love people. Come on, we love, share the love, all the love. So long as they know how things go around here. They need to know when to stand, when to sit, and when to kneel. We are Anglicans, after all, and we do things properly. Are we being compelled by the love of Jesus? If not, why not? What's the disconnect? 
What's missing? What holds us back from welcoming others? What holds us back from genuinely loving others? Do we value our own comfort more than the souls and well-being of other people? These are questions that all Christians need to ask. All churches need to ask. And we at St. Aidan's are no different. We need to wrestle with these questions. Are we walking in the light of Christ's love? Are we compelled by the love that Jesus has freely offered to us? If God has loved us, so we also ought to love. But there's a reason why we often don't. And that reason is fear. Fear's a killer. It keeps us from engaging with people. It keeps us from opening up to other people about ourselves because what might they think of me? It keeps us from opening our doors because what might happen? How might things change? We have this fear because often we view God through a lens of fear. Fear that if God really knew me, really, really knew me, then he wouldn't love me. It's why so many Christians have a hard time extending love to others, because the image we have of God is one of fear, not of love, not of forgiveness. He's the one who will punish me, not extend extravagant forgiveness and love to me. And that's the image of God that we have. When we're afraid of him. We feel very little need to love and serve others. But if we know God, if we have submitted to the call of Christ, we have no need to fear. Verses 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, that can seem kind of like a confusing section. It's certainly not the easiest part of Scripture to read. But in a nutshell, it tells us that because of God's love, if we are in Christ, we need not fear judgment and condemnation. That when we know our Father as the one who is love and has loved us in Jesus, then we become changed by his love. As Christ fills us with his love and frees us from the fear of judgment, we see God as the source of love and light, and that shifts our perspective. We're not gripped by the fear of condemnation, but by the joy of forgiveness and love. We are shaped in God's love in such a way that it allows us to begin to rightly love other people. It becomes easier to welcome those who look and act and sound different than we do. It becomes easier to forgive and to ask for forgiveness, to not condemn others for sin, but to point them to the one who forgives our sins and leads us on in the light. John tells us that no one can love God and hate his brother. 
when we feel a hardness of heart towards others, it is an opportunity for us to remember the love that Jesus has for us. It is an opportunity to turn back to God, to ask him to shift our perspective again so that we might extend to that person that we find so hard to love the same love that Jesus showed to us. God is love. It's a beautiful scripture. It's meant to compel and shape us as Christians. And it only makes sense in the light of what Jesus has done for us. For without him, we would take that scripture and flip it right around, worshiping love rather than God. But shaped by Jesus and his gracious self-sacrifice, it forms us in a way that others notice and we point people to Jesus as we experience the joy of his love. If this is the love that Jesus has for us, why would we have divided loyalties, trusting in other things, worshiping false gods? The God who is love loves us and gave himself for us. Why would we be afraid or distrustful of him? He is the God who is love, and he has loved us even when we didn't love him. Why would we not love others? The God who is love sent Jesus to die for our sins as he did for every other person we meet, interact with, see. That is what it means that God is love. Jesus died and gave himself for us and for the world. And because of that, for all who are in Christ, there is no guilt in life nor fear in death, but cross-shaped love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you have poured out upon us in the gift of your Son. Thank you that you are love, that your very nature is to love. We pray, Lord, that you would so open our hearts and shape us by the love that Christ has shown us, that we would love others in that way, and that more people through the love of your church would be pointed back to you, that they might know the love that you have for them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.